you're seated, the preaching of God's Word comes from Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 13 and through verse 18. Luke 16, verses 13 through 18. As we considered last week, Christ presented the parable of the unjust steward, and here he continues his teaching, which then is taken up through the treatment of the Pharisees. So hear the word of God, Luke 16, beginning there at verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men. But God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. Thus far the word of God for our consideration this morning. Notice as we take up this passage that the fundamental focus is there stated in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. Notice the language. No servant can. Not that it's not permitted. It certainly isn't permitted. But that it is utterly impossible to have two masters. Now, to understand the language, we have to go to the days of Christ Jesus when a master was more than a temporal boss but truly would be a master. So we think of slaves, and a slave is answerable to his master. This is the mindset of what's before us here. And here Christ says it's impossible to have two such masters, two such ultimate authorities to which our hearts plead allegiance. And he says here's what will happen if one attempts to do it. He will hate the one and love the other. Or, if we can't say it in those terms, he will hold to the one. Even if he doesn't love that one, he'll say, this is the one I would rather serve and despise the other. And so there's a drifting of the heart toward one or the other. Whether that is out of what we would call a loving affection, or whether that is simply out of a despising of the other, which causes then a drifting to the alternative. But notice, Christ isn't talking about earthly masters. He says, ye cannot serve God and mammon. Which brings us back to what we considered the week prior, when Christ speaks of mammon, these riches. And he speaks, for instance, in verse 11, If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? So one thing that Christ is doing here is he's protecting against a false understanding. He's called us to be diligent and faithful with the least thing, riches, earthly wealth, and other provisions. And in doing so, he's guarding us against thinking, well, that means we're to make that the main thing, that we're so to focus upon that as to 
justify ourselves before God in our prioritizing of riches. Christ says, no, that our faithfulness in the little thing, earthly provision, is because of our faithfulness to God. And so it orients us again to say that all of our diligence with things of this world are not as ends in themselves, nor are they competing goals, but they are rather being overseen ultimately out of a desire to serve God. There's to be no competing. This, of course, makes sense elsewhere in Scripture where Christ says, listen, if your right hand causes you to stumble, you are to cut it off. If your right eye causes you to stumble, you're to pluck it out. What's he saying? Not even your own provision is to be uh, held equal to the honor of God. Nothing else is to stand supreme. Our catechism summarizes the Scriptures so well when it says, what is the chief end of man? And man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is nothing more than summarizing the Scriptures, that all that we do, let it be done to the glory of God our Father, giving thanks to Him through Jesus Christ our Savior. But notice what happens. So there's this record provided us. Christ says it, and the Pharisees begin to deride Him. You can almost see the scowls. You can hear their murmurings. They're deriding of Him, as it says. And what were they deriding Him about? Well, His teaching But what's told to us is the cause of their derision of Christ. Why are they grumbling against Christ? It's not because they found something that was wrong in his teaching. It's because his finger had just touched their stench. Their wound that was festering with all manner of corruption. He had just laid the probe upon it. And in doing so, it elicits from them this response. The Pharisees also who were covetous. You see, Christ is protecting His disciples, and yet at the same time, He is bringing rebuke unto the Pharisees. The Pharisees catch this, and now they deride Him. Christ one to be pushed over or to fear the face of men. And so notice, He speaks to them. He looks at the Pharisees, and He says, here's what you need to know about yourselves. Ye are they which justify yourselves before men. What a searching rebuke that is. Publicly, these men lived for the adulation of others in public. This is why Christ says they made long prayers. He doesn't deride long prayers, but long prayers for to be heard of men. This is why they gave all of these things so that men would see them. And now Christ, in the presence of others, rebukes them. You are they which justify yourselves before men. And yet notice he says, But God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. And now what may seem as something of out of place at first glance, verses 16, 17, and 18 seal the rebuke. He says, The law and the prophets were until John. That's the Old Testament. And he says, since that time, since the coming of John the Baptist, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. The idea is they've seen the entrance and they say we're letting go of everything else in order to fly into the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel. 
And this is, of course, seen in the publicans and the sinners who had come to Christ. They were willing to let go, as it were, of their sins in order to hold fast to Christ Jesus. But then notice he says, this is different than what you're doing. He says it's easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. If anyone, Christ is saying, thinks that I've come to wipe away God's law, you're mistaken. Do you know what a tittle is? Children, you know what a T is if you've learned to write. So you have this vertical line and the horizontal line that crosses it. In English, if we're to borrow what's getting, being said about Hebrew, the tittle would be just the one side of the horizontal line, the small dash. It's this little mark, the smallest mark that one can make. Christ says, listen, if you think that the requirements of obedience have been relinquished, you're mistaken. Heaven and earth will pass before one requirement is lost. And so then he has made a foundation from which he makes his point to them. Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. What's he getting at? You justify what is lawless in God's sight. You think it's permissible just to be laissez-faire and careless in your approach to God's law. He's ridiculed them on other occasions, reproving them for tithing mint and anise and cumin, and yet neglecting the weightier things of the law, saying that you ought not to have neglected the weightier things. The weightier things are significant. And you'll remember that on another occasion, he reproves them when in the commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, they had found a way around that by saying, listen, all that I have is dedicated to God. So mom and dad, in the days of your need, I cannot lift my finances for your benefit because I've dedicated them to God. And he says, you for your vain traditions have set aside the law of God. What's he getting at? He says, this is the sum and substance of your approach. You are seeking to serve two masters. You're seeking to serve the religious appearance in the sight of men while retaining all of your selfish desires as well. Covetousness is but one symptom, which then exposes itself, evidences itself in the compromising, not of some generic law, but the triune God's law. And so Christ is coming to them and saying, Pharisees, you, howsoever religiously you esteem yourselves, howsoever religiously men esteem you, you are in the sight of God abomination. Brethren, such a warning is before us this day. The heart of man is capable of only one ultimate allegiance. All attempts to hold multiple masters fail and prove to be beneath the glory and dignity of God. So consider then three things for us this morning. Firstly, the impossibility of divided allegiance Secondly, the deception of combining allegiances. And thirdly, the cause of corrupted allegiance. The impossibility of divided, the deception of combining allegiances, 
and the cause of corrupted allegiance. Let's be clear from the outset that though Christ in verse 13 identifies money, the principle is serving two masters. Maybe we can say to some extent or another, you know what, I'm not really interested in wealth. That's fine, but the principle still stands. This is a searching cause to examine our allegiance. Are we sincerely holding to God alone? Or have we allowed compromises to creep in which prove to be a disaster in the way of God. Firstly then, the impossibility of divided allegiance. No man can serve two masters. We ought to see firstly that the reality of having a divided allegiance is utterly impossible. Could you imagine someone saying, well, in the time of our own history's uh, nation's civil war, I support both the North and the South. We can understand someone saying, I don't agree with either of them. We can understand that. But to say, you know what, I submit to President Lincoln and I submit to the Confederate President Jefferson Davis. Could you imagine such a thought? Could you imagine someone saying, I submit and I obey Hitler and I obey the Allies? You'd say, this is utterly impossible. You can't do that. You have the right in civil things to say, you know what, I disagree with both. I'm not taking a side. That's understandable. We can understand those kinds of things. But to stand forth and say, I hold to both, which are contradictions, is utterly impossible. And this is Christ's point. You can't have more than one true master. Now, we ought to realize, children, this isn't saying you're not to obey your parents, because parents are a subordinate, a secondary authority. And they are to train you up for what purpose? To know and serve the Lord. Earthly governments are a secondary authority. And they're to rule well as God's servants to provide order and justice in society. Pastors and elders are a subordinate, a secondary authority. Christ isn't saying there aren't subordinate authorities. He's saying that when we strive to hold to two ultimate authorities, it's like being to two sets of horses that are driving the opposite direction. It cannot be done. It will rip us apart. But in fact, what he goes on to say is though the reality is impossible, the attempt is common. It's a common attempt. It's not so explicit in our minds I imagine that no Pharisee would have said to Christ, you know what, you've put your finger on our issue. We think that God is our master and riches are our master. It's rare to find anyone that would speak so explicitly. But so soon as he says it, what's the response? The Pharisees come who are covetous and they deride him. Though they never would have said, you know what, you're right, we serve two masters or are trying to. Yet their practice proved the attempt They were a covetous people. They lived for the applause of men. Covetous, by the way, not only of riches. When we're covetous for riches, it's one symptom of a deeper issue of covetousness itself. We lust. We're longing to have. And so it's no wonder when we find the Pharisees who are covetous for riches to be covetous and desirous for men's applause. 
it's no surprise because it's a symptom. It's sort of like in our day, there's so much thought about Christian modesty only addressing one's outward dress. Well, brethren, there is tremendous more about modesty than one's dress. And what happens is the mistake gets made to say, well, women only can wear skirts or dresses, and it has to be of this length or that length. Instead of seeing the principle, and what's more, seeing that that is but a symptom of a bigger issue. The issue of modesty is not just about our physical dress and apparel. It's about our whole approach to life. Is there that bravado that goes through? Is there that desire to say, look at me, you see? Modesty doesn't just address the outward form. It addresses the inward, the meek and quiet spirit before the Lord. And when the meek and quiet spirit before the Lord is possessed well, then the outward follows in all these other things. Well, the same is true with covetousness. The covetousness for riches is but a symptom of a covetousness for selfish gain. And here the Pharisees were a premier example of what Christ is condemning. Because on the one side, they were those who sought themselves as ultimately dedicated unto the Lord God. They were the Pharisees. They were a a people set apart among people who were set apart. Paul presents this when he says, listen, it's touching the righteousness of the law is faultless. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. People knew this. I was most searching of the requirements, not just of God's law, but the traditions of the Pharisees. And yet, as he realized, he was dead because he lusted for men's applause. He coveted. Isn't it interesting? What's the commandment that brought Paul to his conviction? He says, thou shalt not covet. It's instructive to us. When it says the Pharisees were covetous, It's much more than just the lust for finances. They were filled with lusts. They desired much unto themselves, of which riches were only one sort. So in other words, the attempt may not be riches explicitly. It may be men's applause, as the Pharisees elsewhere evidenced. It may be possessions. It may be building a great library. It may be having a great plot of land. It may be having all of the tools and skills and abilities that one's industry or calling requires and to be thought much of in the world. And when it's that we get back and view this from a distance, what we start to see is there are competing allegiances. And this can be about lawful things. Family, marriage, friendships. These things become enlarged out of proportion to the ultimate serving of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Christ's point. This attempt is utterly impossible howsoever we dress it, howsoever we provide it to others, and so on. So set it down in your mind that it is impossible to have God as God and any other competing for your allegiance, whatever it may be. It's common, notice, not just in the world. We think this way. We think, well, the world is the one who puts this on. 
Brethren, the Pharisees were members of the church. They were leaders appointed by God to serve the church. And so Christ, when his disciples are coming, he's reproving the Pharisees. He says, listen, they sit in Moses' seat. Hear them. Listen to them. They are authorized teachers of God's word, but do not after their own doing, because they lead men astray by their actions. As they open and expound God's word, you're to receive that word. This is the error of separatism, which separates for any fault and so on. Notice, the attempt is common in God's church. When Christ would address the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, there was often, among the reproofs, this addressing of those who desirous for men's applause and guidance or leading would lead men astray. And that's within the church. The Antichrist, that Antichrist of God, sits, as it were, in the church, acting, declaring himself to be as God. He's sucking unto himself that which our carnal hearts would desire. Here's the point. We are not free from this impossible attempt because we are enrolled in the roles of the church. And so we have to set it down ourselves. It is impossible if I attempt it. It is impossible if I am attempting it. It is impossible if I ever attempted it to hold to God and anything else. Well, secondly, notice the deception of combining allegiances. As noted, the attempt is common. And though it's impossible, it does not remove the attempt to combine the allegiances And so here the Pharisees are guilty of trying to combine religion with the esteem of men. So notice firstly, there is the attempt to bring a religious appearance before men. And by the way, the Pharisees were largely successful in this. They were highly esteemed of men as religious men. They were highly esteemed as teachers of God's law. And notice, this wasn't accidental. It wasn't like, well, they were doing things that are right and good. It is what they sought. It's what they pursued. It's different from someone seeking the Lord and others saying, that's a godly man. It's actually what was targeted. It's what they had set their crosshairs upon. What I want is to be thought of by others as religious. And so notice what Christ says He says, ye are they which justify yourselves before men. When you're in their audience, you're vindicating your cause. You always have a reason you're right. You always have a reason that others are wrong. And you always want people to declare that you're righteous, that you're good, that you're acceptable, that your standing before God is secure. This is because they were covetous. And they desired the applause of men. Brethren, this is a good search for ourselves. Have we attempted this side of the combining of allegiances that we want men to think of ourselves as much? We want others to think of ourselves as much. And brethren, where that religious appearance before men is cultivated, it will bleed over into our devotions. It's in the same Gospel, Luke chapter 18, that we find Christ presenting another testimony, a parable, verse 9 and 10 and so on, when he says in verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. 
The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee, hear the religious side of it, that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Here's the problem, of course. He is centered upon himself. Look how good I am. And doubtlessly, he was sincere in his sentiment. He was thinking as he prayed, I thank you, God, that this is what I am. But his ground of hope was upon himself. His ground of hope before God was his ground of desire before men to be seen and judged religious. And so when we begin to make religious appearance before men our goal, it will automatically seep into even the most intimate devotions of our soul. But notice that's one side, the attempt to combine, I want this. Oh, we wouldn't say it, would we? We wouldn't say, would we, I want men to think much of me. We wouldn't say, would we, my goal is so to impress others that they would rise and say, there goes a godly woman. There goes a godly man. Notice the one side, this religious appearance before men, secondly, is followed by the religious compromise before God. They could not maintain a preeminent love to themselves without compromising the preeminent submission in faith and obedience to God. So Christ provides the foundation for His rebuke of them. He says, listen, the law and the prophets the Old Testament were until John. Since that time, that is since John's come, the kingdom of God is preached. Ever hear this expression, the kingdom of God, that's testifying to us there's a king. When there's a kingdom, there's a king. And he's saying, God is that king. You must submit to him. The preaching of the kingdom of God has gone forth. And men that hear it, they humble themselves before his divine and ultimate authority. And they say, all else is but dross and vanity and waste and dung. This is what Paul says. He says, I've counted it all as but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. Here's the mark of those who know God. They cast off all in order to seek the way through Christ Jesus in submission unto God. And then he goes further. And he says, the standard of obedience doesn't change. It's the objective black and white of God's law. Christ doesn't change that. Christ says, listen, the earth will fail before one demand is relinquished. And so as he says that, he sets up for this searching, pointed reproof. Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery. Whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. This is no statement that there is absolutely no circumstance for divorce, for we see him stating that there is in the issue of fornication and in the issue of abandonment. But what he's identifying is that in Christ's day, the Pharisees had come up with all of these abilities to set aside God's law and still to maintain an appearance 
of religion before God. We talked about this with their honoring of their fathers and mothers. Oh, how pious it sounded when their mom and dad fell ill and they stood in need of financial support for them to come and say, well, mom and dad, I would truly love to serve you, but I've served God and so my devotion is to Him. All of my finances are now dedicated to Him. And so I'll pray for you, yes. I'll visit you, yes. But the finances you need can't come from me because they're devoted to God. Oh, people sit in the sidelines. You can almost imagine this saying, what a religious man. What an amazing, devout man that he would sincerely long to help his parents, but, oh, out of his vow unto God, he can't provide financially. There goes a very pious man. Well, what was true in that was true with all the other commandments. Oh, how they had entrenched the Sabbath of its beauty with all of their fences and their wrong additions of saying, well, you can't take this many steps. And, you know, I see that your disciples, who, by the way, meet the requirements of poverty-stricken people, while they're rubbing out the grain on the Sabbath day and eating a handful, you can't do that. I see, Christ, that you've healed a man who was withered and paralyzed. You can't do that. You see, the pretended zeal for God's law. And Christ doesn't say, Oh, you're amazing. This zeal is astounding. He says, you are hypocrites. You've set up this pretended zeal for my law, but you don't obey it. My law is God's law. So he says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He doesn't set aside the Sabbath. He says you've corrupted the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a creation ordinance. Who can take that away? God sets it forth for the good of man. And likewise, when he opens his law in the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say? He says, listen, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. He doesn't say, well, let's set that aside now. He says, I say to you, you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you're guilty. You've heard it said, thou shalt not hate thy, or thou shalt hate thy uh, enemy. I say unto you, love your enemy. See what he's doing? He's setting up for what follows in the Sermon on the Mount. I tell you, except... Who's he speaking to? His disciples. I tell you, except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, You are not my disciples. There is no entrance into heaven. Because I've not come to set aside the law. I've come to save you from your sin against the law and to enliven you to a loving and a delightful obedience to it. But Pharisees, you've necessarily had to compromise that. You've come up with creative ways to say, well, we'll set that aside. We'll put that on the other side of things. You see, here's the point. In the Pharisees' minds, in many that looked upon the Pharisees, they were the paragon of righteousness. But notice what is said by Christ. God knoweth your hearts. Verse 15. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. What's he saying? You're deceived. You've missed the point. You have fundamentally erred. Men think you're religious. You think you're religious. But in the sight of God, you have stood 
as an abomination in God's sight. They misunderstood. They misrepresented God's kingdom, both of the Old and of the New Covenants. And in doing so, they had set themselves up as these leaders. But as Christ said, you are but blind leaders of the blind. Well, notice then lastly, what's the cause of this corrupted allegiance? Well, we can say a number of things. It's right, there's a degree of which it is ignorance. They were ignorance of the righteousness God demanded. Paul makes this plain. We could say, well, they had circumstances around them that culturally sort of uh, brought up this thought. And there's truth to that. But Christ, skillful physician, puts his finger on the problem when he identifies it is a corrupt heart. Notice, the Pharisees also who were covetous. And he says in verse 15, God knoweth your hearts. This is true whether it's on the side of the Pharisees who through their pretended explicit pursuit of outward religion were yet bankrupt, or on the alternate side of people who abandoned true religion altogether. Here's the fundamental problem. It's that their hearts are corrupt. They're dead in sin and trespasses. Let me ask you this question. How is an Old Testament person saved? Hopefully you know this. By grace, through faith in Christ. They had need to be born again. Christ doesn't come to Nicodemus and say, well, Nicodemus, you're a child of Abraham. You're under the Old Covenant. Therefore, you don't need to be born again. Anyone ever saved was born again. Generate. The Spirit of God had given them life. Here's the point. The issue of regeneration is not a New Testament thing. It is a mankind need. The fundamental need is that our corrupt heart would be translated and transformed and given life so that we would no longer have what is corrupt, diseased, and dead, but we would have that which is alive and flourishing by His grace through faith. The cause of the corrupted allegiance is a corrupted fountain, the heart. Now, that corrupted fountain can run a lot of different ways. It's like a river as it starts out and then it hits some obstacle and one branches off this way and another branches that way. The same water is going different directions, but it's the same from the same source. And so in humanity, it may be that, well, this corrupt allegiance that begins in the heart goes itself the route of outward religion. Or it may be that it goes the way, as we sang earlier, of the fool who hath in his heart said there is no God. It doesn't matter because the fountain is the same. It's a corrupted heart that's dead in sin. That's the problem. So though there is the need to be diligent in teaching and reproving and so on, fundamentally the need is that God would stoop down in mercy and give to men a heart of flesh. That's the need. A heart that is alive. This is the cause. They had their very essence corruption. Notice, they had as well a wrong focus. What was their focus? Well, Christ gets at it in verse 15 when He says, you justify yourselves before men. Your focus is upon men. If they, as it were, say, oh, you're righteous. Oh, how that feeds your soul and your soul. Less, but if they think of yourself as 
unrighteous. Now all is off. They had their focus, but it was wrong. Could you imagine going to shoot at targets? And there you are, and you have your lane, and several others have their lane, and there's prize on the line. You know, the one who hits the most bullseyes wins a thousand dollars. You know, you can make this up as you go and so on. And so there you are and you're shooting and you think, I am hitting every time the bullseye in front of me. But then as things come back, the judge looks and says, you haven't hit your target once. You say, what was I doing? And you realize you've been aiming across the lane at the other's bullseye. Nothing counts. It's all off. Your target has no penetration marked on the bullseye. You had focused on the wrong thing. Well, this is the point with reference to false religion. It focuses upon the wrong thing. And as it hits its mark, it thinks, oh, how good, how blessed, how happy. But the problem is, it's hitting the wrong mark. Christ reproves by saying, you have your focus upon men, but in doing so, you ignore the ultimate, which is God. God looks upon you as abominable in His sight. Brethren, think of this for a moment. What good does it do if you can search out and find, whether in our circles, other circles, your places of work and friendships and so on, your families uh, uh, and so forth, what good does it do if someone comes and says, you're a great person, you know, I'm pretty impressed, all these things that you do. But God's looking at us saying, you're abominable. You know, you can think of people who in this world amass such support. Political figures, athletes, entertainers, and they have literally millions of people who know their name, who follow them, who watch their videos, who listen to them, who are influenced by them. You can think of the big, I mean, the worldwide uh, famous people. And how you could mention their name in Asia. You could mention their name in Africa. You could mention their name in South America, North America, and Europe. You could mention it almost to any culture, and they would say, that person is significant. Well, brethren, what's true of the world's entertainers can be true as well among religious pretenders. They can amass to themselves support. It doesn't have to be big, not worldwide, though it can be. But grant for the moment that your name was circulated throughout the world and everyone said, there goes a religiously zealous person. Look at their family. Look at their habits. Look at their dealings and so on. And yet, for the sake of the argument, if God were to be looking at you and saying, you are deplorable. There's nothing, nothing at all that is commendable before me from you. What would it matter? Realize this, don't you? There are people who will leave this world where they found nothing but support of men, and they will find themselves isolated in the depths and the agony of hell, with the God of heaven and earth against them. This is significant. It's enormous. It's something that warrants our own consideration to say, how does it stand with me? Is it true? Oh, I want people to think of me as religious. But can I look at myself and say, by God's grace, there's evidence of true faith. I know God's law, and by God's grace, His law is guiding me. 
by God's grace, His commandments are directing me. I'm not trying to earn anything in front of God, but rather by His grace, He's working within me to will and to do of all of His good pleasure. Brethren, as we close, there's cause here to learn. Christ upholds God's law, and His grace is what brings forth obedience. He doesn't set it aside. Not one tittle shall fail. And so when we hear people talk of this today, we ought to remember, oh, this isn't some vain principle from church history and tradition. This is from the King. Christ upholds the law of God. But notice then, we ought to be examining ourselves. Do I comfort myself with the esteem of men? Do I say to myself, soul, it's well for you because others think highly of you? And in doing so, if I assess myself well, do I find that I neglect, ignore, or set aside the law of God? Those two things were the fundamental symptoms of the vanity of the Pharisees, which made them abomination in the sight of God. So then what should we do? We learn, of course, we examine ourselves. What exhorts us to press in to the kingdom of God as it's preached. It exhorts us to say, there is the way of righteousness. The gate of it is by faith in Christ Jesus. The walk in it is by obedience to His commandments, by the Spirit's working in us. Not coming up with fine distinctions and so on which set aside God's law, but a simple faith which submits both to His promises and to His commandments and walks by the strength of Christ Jesus. To do so, we must begin by setting God as the primary above all others, who only has that assessment of us that matters. Young people, this is important for you, especially we live in a day when what matters in the world's esteem is what others think of us. And so we can even talk about, of course, the corrupted influence of social media, that there are, there are legitimately mental issues that have been identified through the addictive influence of social media. And the looking at it, oh, so many people liked it, and the endorphins that hit the brain. And then the next time, no one liked it. Oh, and there's a lack of it. And the anorexia and bulimia that has erupted over the past 10, 15 years because high schoolers stay up all hours of the night dreaming, living by the words of others, texting and all of these different activities that go on and trying to find their value in the esteem of others. But brethren, we see the corrupting influence in our own generation of such a false goal, but spiritually there's something more important. The world is right, and understand this, the world can identify, can identify that problem. The world can say something's wrong here. But what's the world's solution? The world's solution is this. Well, what you need to do is get good friends. You need to correct these habits and so on. Well, there's truth to that. We don't deny it. We don't say that there's nothing to that. But the problem is it switches from one scene of mere men unto another scene of mere men from which then we're to gain our thoughts and our standing. What God says is it's fundamentally wrong. The issue is not social media, the issue is not texting, the issue is not 
teenage years and young adult years. The issue is more fundamental to that. We at root issue set up others and their esteem to be the ultimate. We live for others. We live for their esteem. We live for their fellowship. We live for their social engagement and so on. And what God's saying before us is this. All of it, in its most corrupt form, in its most civilly appropriate form, is fundamentally wrong. Because there's one who matters. And it's God. God is the one who matters. And so the thing that we must start with is to say, set before our minds and our hearts, it's God's assessment which matters. What does God say of this? It doesn't matter if I have zero friends, if I only have enemies. It doesn't matter if I have all friends and no enemies. What fundamentally matters is God's assessment of my life. If we start there, we start where the world doesn't. Not its counselors, not its teachers, not its authors, not its social commentaries, and so on. But rather, we start in the right place. I stand before God. And so then we have to ask ourselves, well, how do I know what God thinks of me? Christ points out, look to his law. His law tells us what's required. How do I stand before that? Well, I've sinned here, I've sinned there, and so on. And this is far worse than being the laughingstock on social media. This is an assessment of divine strength that comes and says, you stand as a sinner condemned. So what do we do from there? Well, the kingdom of God is preached, and men press into it. Christ is held forth. The gospel is offered. And so we remember, oh, it's far worse than our world thinks. The suicidal rates are deplorable, but brethren, it's far worse than the teenager that killed himself last night because of this malaise of all the social media that's going on. It's far worse than those who have died from the bombings that are taking place in Ukraine. It's far worse than the world can hold forth because whether thought to be religious or absolutely anti-religious, if they die outside of God's kingdom, they enter into an unchangeable estate of damnation. The world has no sense of that. And therefore, the world can't counsel correctly regarding that. But behold, Christ comes and says, the kingdom of God is preached. And there's an entrance. It's not by getting the right medication. It's not by getting the right friend group. It's not by finding this or that or the other thing in this world. Those may be helpful for earthly purposes, but they do nothing to address the fundamental issue. The Pharisees did it the best and they failed. They sought by their own attempts to, as it were, bring themselves as those who were accepted with God. And Christ says, you're abomination. Brother, the Pharisees failed. There's none of us who can succeed. But what was it that John preached? You remember, he looks at Jesus Christ and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. The kingdom of God is preached and men press into it. They come to Christ and they say, He's the sacrifice. He's the substitute. I come to Him. I take Him. He's my Savior. He's my entrance into heaven. I don't bring my righteousness in. I take Him who is my substitute, my sacrifice. 
And brethren, that only comes when we receive the condemning testimony from God. Ye are abomination in God's sight. If I'm abomination, what can I do? The kingdom of God is opened. Christ is proclaimed. There's a Savior for sinners. See, there's not a Savior for, for righteous. This is Christ's point elsewhere where he says, you know, it's not the, those that are whole that need a physician. It's those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous to repentance. I've come to call sinners. There's the kingdom of God opened. And understand it. The door open says only enter. Isn't that astounding? It doesn't say, listen, before you enter in, make sure you get yourself clean. Pharisees tried it. They were abominable in God's sight. He is the Savior of sinners. Paul makes this point so abundantly clear when he testifies that he who is the chief of sinners was saved by Christ, that those after me would see a pattern by me. That this is a faithful of all acceptation. Christ Jesus died to save sinners. The kingdom of God stands open to sinners, saying, Come, be forgiven, be received, be blessed, be saved, and things of God forever. Would you stand with me for prayer?